Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly, and what's next in the digital factory? Who is leading the change? What are the key skills to learn how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0? The topic is the challenge of frontline operations. Our guest is Jason Dietrich, Head of Commercial Operations at Tula. In this conversation, we talk about what is frontline operations? What are the specific needs industrial companies have when they want to digitize their operations? We discuss some tulip use cases and what will industrial operations look like in the next decade. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by Futurist Trulnarnenheim and presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I thought we would finally sit down and talk a little bit about frontline operations. It's an exciting time for industry right now. No, it sure is. There's a lot happening in the market, and, and certainly we're happy to be part of it. So Jason, you joined Tulip relatively recently, but manufacturing and software is not new to you, right? You started out as a chemical engineer as Merck, right? And you know, you got yourself an MBA, you got that sort of classic engineer plus MBA combo, but you've been selling software in many, many different configurations. I, I, I'm going to probably butcher your history here, but you've sold MES systems for over a decade at Aviva, at ThingWorks. So this begs the question, where is this deep fascination for manufacturing and tangible software solutions to it? Where does this come from? Yeah, well, you, you kind of got it right with the starting point. I, I started as a process engineer at Merck, and my focus there was active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturing. And my first job as a chemical engineer, you know, learning how things are made and learning how to manage a process and learning about all the conditions that happen in the manufacturing process. And as I started to end my career at Merck, I started deploying more industrial automation software there and realized there was this whole open opportunity for me to, to sell industrial automation software to help companies do what Merck was doing. So my fascination kind of started with learning grassroots manufacturing, learning how to operate and process, and then how to deploy software to help companies be more efficient. And I really like to, to watch how things are made. You know, I love going to manufacturing facilities. I've been to over a thousand facilities you now over the last 20 years. And each time I go to a manufacturing facility, it excites me to see how things are made. Well, we'll get deeper into it. I mean, it is very exciting, specifically the category that's emerging now. I wanted to focus on, on that a little bit. I know at Tulip, it's called frontline operations. Can you uh, give a very concise description of what that industrial category is? Because there are a lot of acronyms in the industry, and this I guess doesn't add to it because it's not a three-letter word, or it actually can be spelled out and has you know a meaning. Manufacturing execution system is somewhat longer. What is frontline operations? Yeah, think of frontline operations as a connected data and process management tool that connects people, systems, and things. So think about a, a tool that allows collaboration between people. And collaboration between people might be at a shift changeover. You want to make sure that the next shift understands what happened in the previous shift. So there's collaboration between those people or training notes or best practices. You think about connecting systems, you know, a platform or a tool in the frontline operation space 
has to allow a manufacturer to connect to their existing systems, ERP, LIMS, warehouse management, quality systems, and so on. And then finally, the things. And there's a lot of talk about the Internet of Things, but a frontline operations platform also connects to things. Things are machines, sensors, scales, you know, where data is captured and needs to be represented into the platform so it can be used by an operator. That sounds pretty clear to me, but the complication is all these other terms that I sort of briefly mentioned. If you think about the sort of more traditional MES market, and you've been part of it for for years, what would you say is the main distinguishing feature that separates sort of the traditional idea of what a manufacturing execution system was doing and what frontline operations support platforms are aiming at doing? When I look at a traditional MES, and of course, as you mentioned, I, I sold them you know, for over 15 years between a company called Simnet and ultimately we were acquired by Wonderware, which is now Aviva. Our focus with an MES was it had defined functionality. It was typically focused on a very specific vertical. The user experience was not always very flexible. And the deployment cycle for a traditional MES you know, was in many cases multiple years and an extensive amount of implementation effort. So I characterize it as it's a monolithic system with a lot of functionality, very focused functionality, but it's a heavy lift for most companies. When I think of a frontline operations platform, I think about agile, I think about iterative, I think about allowing a citizen developer to build applications quickly that meet their very specific needs. The biggest distinction is you think about an MES, you get 100% functionality. Most companies only need 20% of that. You think about a frontline operations platform, in the case of Tulip, we provide you a library of applications as well as the ability to build applications, and you can build the 20% you need in a much more cost-effective way, but very focused to meet the needs of your particular environment. But what is the trade-off then in terms of the simplicity you're gaining? Is there a trade-off at all, or can these app-based approaches also scale? You know, Because manufacturing firms traditionally, and you would know this because you're selling to them, they're risk-averse. They have to have near, or at least they imagine, this uh, idea of 100% uptime. Yeah. Uh, you know, they can never go down. And, and certainly when the systems go down, it's a scandal and, uh, you know, it's a big problem and you have to get it up as quickly as possible. So in that environment, what is the trade-off when you choose a lighter system? Really, the trade-off sometimes is, you know, potentially the functionality you get directly out of the box. As an application platform, you know, the frontline operations platform we have, we give you connectors to the systems you need. We give you connectivity to those machines, sensors, and so on. And we give you an application environment to build apps along with an, a, a tool library that gets you started. But we're not a 100% solution out of the box, you know, for the most part. We expect you to use your OT technologists and citizen developers to take what we give you and make sure it's exactly built for purpose. So the only trade-off I see is maybe day one versus a commercial off-the-shelf software, you might get more functionality. But again, I would argue in most cases that functionality is either too rigid for what you need or you don't need it. So why not take something, start with it, and build something exactly what you need to meet your purpose? That's really the only trade-off is kind of day one functionality. To the point on day one, though, I'm kind of curious about that because one of the things that you mentioned with a traditional system is that it takes a while to implement. And there's something also about who gets to implement it. I mean, this has created, obviously, a a market of third-party implementers and systems integrations vendors that come there and are in charge of the system. 
When you were in that space, what are some of the drawbacks when you actually bring in uh, third parties and you're not able to fully understand the system, either because the vendor has to be there and train you, obviously that's provided, or you actually opt for a, some other third party to come in and train your employees on the system or even actually build it out and tweak those functionalities to your use cases? Yeah, I would say traditional MES providers typically either have their own implementation arm inside the organization or use third-party systems integrators to help do the deployment. I've had a lot of successful deployments using SIs. And in fact, at Tulip, we have an SI community that supports us. I think the biggest difference is when you start with a, a traditional MES, you go through a normal V-curve process of user requirements, functional requirements, design, development, test, deploy. And that curve of time is costly. It's not iterative. You can't kind of get started quickly and then iterate kind of fail fast mentality, you really are going through this journey. And that journey is costly, timely, and you do become very reliant on the group that did the implementation work. Hmm. When we think about frontline operations platform like Tulip, our goal is we still may use an SI. You know, we have a services team, but the SI community is very active with us. And our goal there is much more of an agile development process, sprints, build an application in two or three weeks, get it rolled out, see what's working, what's not working, iterate and roll out and get more efficiencies early on in the process. Jason, I'm curious because you have such a rich background and obviously you, you transitioned for a reason and we can get to that as well. But I'm curious, and this is not going to be a vendor shaming, let's not talk names here, but there are a lot of large vendors. You've worked for some of them. There are others in the space. These are gigantic companies that do many, many things, but among other things, they might have an MES system. Some of them arguably have taken quite a while to develop these platforms. Uh, some of it is patchwork. They acquired bits and pieces. Arguably, the end result has become somewhat monolithic, as I believe was the term you used. That may be the case, but why is it that, or would you say that they haven't changed over time? Because, you know, surely those vendors also realize that their systems are somewhat cumbersome. Wouldn't they have been able to adapt? And would you say that the entire market eventually is shifting towards this more flexible app-based system? Or, or is there really still an enormous distinction between a legacy system and these newer approaches? I think it does depend on the vendor. Some vendors are adapting and trying to do what they would call more configurable MES, where you can deploy portions of the system and a little more flexibility on the, the operator experience. And then and others have really stayed very traditional, again, monolithic, X amount of functionality, operator experience, not as customizable. I think the biggest challenge that most of the traditional MES providers that they're dealing with and that we've certainly overcome and, uh, and others have is we're cloud centric. And when you think about the majority and, and it's the very high majority of traditional MES, they're an on-prem solution. And it's very difficult and costly for them to make the migration to have that same functionality and that experience in the cloud. And with the way the market has moved and cloud adoption happening across manufacturing and operational settings, that's their biggest investment coming forward is if they want to move that direction, in some cases, it's a rewrite or certainly a major architectural change. And I think that's why they've stayed pretty static. Jason, is it your opinion that on-prem is going to disappear entirely? I mean, I'm just thinking of the fact that many factories... First of all, there are big and small factories. Some factories just don't have maybe the agility or maybe the budgets even to make the transition. Others perhaps have a lot of old machinery, which may or may not be able to adapt to these uh, new types of solutions. Is it your opinion that everyone is going to be moving to cloud fairly rapidly? Or 
is it going to sort of be a continued evolution, which historically is the situation in manufacturing, this coexistence of old and new all the time, whether hardware or software? Yeah, manufacturers by nature are conservative. And I would say, depending on the vertical, they're even more conservative. I think it's an evolution to your question. You know, I don't think it's going to be a dramatic flip the switch and all on-prem goes to all cloud. Right now, what we're seeing is there's a lot of companies who do a hybrid architecture where they have some edge capability. And it might be some machine connection historians, some specific data that they just really believe is best served to be done at the edge. And then they share that information to the cloud for appropriate analysis and analytics or to run other applications. We fit well in a hybrid environment in terms of the overall architecture of a company. But I, I, what I would say is, you know, five years ago, if you would have told me manufacturers would start doing MES-like functionality in the cloud, I would have probably said, you're crazy. Here we are five years later, and I think it's a fact of life now. They're seeing that they don't want to have the infrastructure in-house and the cost of maintenance of that. COVID has certainly been an impact because there are no longer as many personnel on staff on site at all times that can manage that equipment. So we've seen a, a, a drastic uptick in cloud adoption, but I still think it's an evolution. Hmm. Jason, what are the specific needs that industrial companies have when they want to digitize their operations? Presumably, there are many reasons, but what are the main ones that you are seeing now as you're bidding for contracts or engaging with these clients? Yeah, I think any company that's going through a digital transformation project, you know, the first thing that they're thinking about is productivity or efficiency. You know, how can I make more with the same inputs or how can I make the same with less inputs? So how can they optimize the use of their bill of materials, their people and their assets? That's the number one priority that we see. The second thing I would say is, you know, most companies are focused on quality, environmental health, safety and sustainability. And can they improve their metrics that are relative to those KPIs that they have for those key areas of their business? No company goes through a digital transformation project without thinking about return on investment. So any company who's looking at this and they're thinking about digitizing, you know, thinking about if I'm going to spend X, whether that's a CapEx expenditure, more traditional spend, or I'm going to spend OpEx or more of an annual recurring spend, how am I going to prove to my shareholders or my owners that I'm getting value out of that investment? And then the final thing I would say is, is simply every person I talk to, whether you're in manufacturing or what I would call a more traditional operational setting, whether that's supply chain or infrastructure, you want to error-proof your processes. That's, that's their number one goal. And we have a hypothesis, and it's backed up by data, that 70% of the errors that happen in an operational setting are done by humans. So if we can help error-proof their processes, that's a clear reason to digitize so I understand these reasons, but one of the things with an app-based platform, I, I could imagine that one of the objections would be that, uh, you know, we have a very strict governance regime and certainly in regulated industries, you know, governance of systems is important. Traditionally, the IT department sets a lot of standards for how systems should operate, you know, which vendors you can collaborate with and how the system should work, maybe even some interoperability restrictions or foundations. How does that work in an environment where these are apps? Can you still actually, by you know, allowing some developers to sort of go ahead on the individual sites and build apps that go to local use cases, can you still maintain a governance over how the whole system is to be conceived? Yeah, you can. You know, it takes a couple of things. You know, your platform has to have version control, the ability to look at differences between versions and who's kind of created new applications, what have they changed. So you, you need that kind of whole history log of what's happened in the development process. But more importantly, as a company, you have to have change management in place. 
you know, you want as a company have governance over who has the authority to build applications, deploy those applications. And certainly if you're a regulated environment, which we do a lot of work in, you have to think about things like validation. You have to think about, uh, you know, the ability to do auditing of the organization you're dealing with to ensure that quality is built into everything that company does. And as a developer of the applications, when you're starting to use a platform like Tulip, you have to have that same rigor from a quality standpoint. But it can be done, and it's been done you know, by many large pharmaceutical companies with us, certainly, and, and other platforms like Tulip. I wanted to go into some of the use cases in a second, but first, I just wanted you to maybe summarize some of the trends in the market. So we've talked about cloud adoption, which you know no longer is kind of a nice to have. You're saying this is starting to happen, even as painful as it is, both for the vendors who... Uh, you know, might be struggling to provide full cloud adoption because their solutions were attuned to it. And obviously the the clients, the factories and the organizations doing it. What are some of the other trends you're seeing in the market today that are impacting industrial tech and and specifically, uh, you know, automation tech and augmentation tech for the shop floor? Yeah. So beyond the cloud, I think this idea of no code, low code, the idea that citizen developer has gained traction. It's not just in manufacturing or operational settings. There There are low code platforms or no-code platforms that exist kind of across a variety of disciplines. The idea that you want to put the ability for someone to get value and put it in the hands of a process engineer, an operational technologist, someone in quality, that they can rapidly build and get value. I think with the right governance, as we've just talked about, I think that's a trend that's also not going away. The traditional model was you go to IT, you tell them you want to do something, they have to scope it, they have to staff it. They'll take their time appropriately to make that happen. And then ultimately you start the process of, well, this works, this doesn't work. IT owns it in in totality. I think, again, this IT-OT convergence has allowed both parties to now live in a low-code, no-code world. So you said IT-OT convergence. That's a term that I I think I know what means because OT referring to operational technology, but also IT is a department. OT is not always a department. It's essentially O. It's people who are in operations. So it's a much more mixed bag. But I guess my question here is, how far has this no-code or low-code movement gotten? How deep is it in manufacturing compared to, I guess, in other office-based IT these platforms proliferate, right? No one's going to really put you in word processing, spreadsheet training anymore, right? It's assumed that you either know it or you ask someone or you take an online course, you figure it out because the platform itself isn't the problem. You may not have the statistical ability to really use it in a very advanced way, but the interface itself is becoming fairly simple. And, you know, obviously I'm oversimplifying. How is that as compared to the reality on the shop floor right now with the existing tools that are going in this direction? Yeah, so I think for the what we would call the, the office worker or desktop worker, they've had applications that were built for purpose for them. You mentioned a few and to your point, it's become inherent in everyone's daily job if you're a, an office or desktop worker. So, you know, natively, this idea of being able to build dashboards, do reporting, do business intelligence, there are many platforms for that type of worker that have been around, and it's become commonplace. I think manufacturing was also behind the adoption of, of these low-code, no-code type platforms. But I think it's just like the cloud movement. The adoption rate is high. It's no longer kind of in the hype curve. It's, it's now in the adoption phase. And I think with less IT staff in most organizations, with a little more autonomy in the operations part of the business, you're seeing the adoption like you would expect to happen for that office or desktop worker. Hmm. Same thing about the cloud. There's been cloud ERP for a long time. 
there's been PLM or CAD. So you think about the people who design or run the business, they've had cloud, but manufacturers really haven't until recently. And I kind of attribute the same thing to low-code, no-code. I want to talk about one trend that I see happening, which is consolidation in various forms in manufacturing. And historically, I believe that kind of was the only way. It's been very, very hard to build a self-standing kind of new company that provides IT, for example, in manufacturing. They typically tend to be acquired pretty soon, I guess, the moment they become a threat or the moment they experience scaling issues. Talk to me a little bit about this landscape. Which kinds of acquisitions are being made and what does that signal about the landscape? And then maybe lastly, do you have an idea? Is it possible to create great new companies in this space or will they be great, but they will eventually all be acquired by these giants, you know, some of whom you've been on yeah. that journey? So when I think about the landscape of how technology is deployed in manufacturing or operational settings, I kind of break it into three chunks. You have your traditional industrial automation vendors and they have MES, you know, they have HMI SCADA. You know, they have historians and they've been selling and building and consolidating for many years in that space. You then have kind of the IoT platforms, you know, that have kind of come about over the last five to seven years, some of which have already gone through acquisition. And some of those are, you know, well known by some of the larger industrial automation vendors. And then you have kind of point solutions, you know, that are very built for purpose for downtime in OEE or inline quality or work instructions. For Tulip, we kind of span all three of those sectors, which is why I call us a horizontal platform. But when I think about consolidation, what's happened is some of the traditional MES have been acquired. You know, Rockwell recently bought Plex, you know, which was a combo cloud of ERP and MES. So there's consolidation happening still at the MES market. And that consolidation has been happening for over 20 years. You know, there's been, if not 20, you know, 30 major acquisitions in that space. In the IoT platform landscape, there's been some acquisition that's occurred. But many of those companies are still maybe early phase. And then the point solutions, it happens all the time. You know, a big company wants that one point solution to offset their own stack. So those consolidations will happen in all three of those sectors. You know, the biggest one that was noted over the last 12 months was Aviva acquiring OSIsoft, which was a $5 billion acquisition, you know, major move in the market. And that's going to be interesting to see how those two organizations come together because there is some offsetting technologies. But I don't think consolidation is going to change meaning it's going to continue. And I think point solutions will continue to be picked off by larger companies. To your latter question, I think companies can build great companies. Again, I'm being very personal here in that I think Tulip is a great company, will continue to be a great company. But I think you can really still build the ground up grassroots, especially when you're bringing in technology that's new to the market. Well, let's talk about that for a while. And you know, you can personalize it if you want. You made the leap to Tulip but I'm sure you you know, you know, had options. You've been in this space for a long time and you were quite senior in the space. You, you could have sold pretty much anything you wanted and okay. you jumped to a tulip. What is it that you're seeing as the very, very big upside potential? Or, or is it just that you really kind of needed a change and you sort of like the environment of a startup? Give me some sense of what your optimism is sort of based on. Yeah, first and foremost, I mean, I, again, I, I love being in the manufacturing market and selling technology. And I look at Tulip as, as full circle for me. Selling MES for a long time and, and helping companies be successful making those deployments, understanding what their needs are, but learning over time that for every major account we would win where we said, hey, they're going to do 50 sites, we did the first two or three. They took a long time. They did get value from those, but it never really got that long end of the tail. Then I moved over to ThingWorks and was selling IoT platforms. 
and started the CDID of this application enablement environment and how you could quickly and rapidly build applications and start to solve. I think of Tulip as the full circle. It's, it's kind of the best of both. So number one is the technology excited me. The market excites me. The fact that we are cloud-centric. But to be honest, the reason I made the move is the people at Tulip. You know, I was impressed with the depth of just across the organization from engineering to product to the sales organization that I'm leading to our delivery group. I just felt like it was a culture and a group of people that I think we can win together. And for me, it's, it's all about winning at the end. I, you know, I want to grow the business. And if you have the right people, you can make any technology work. Hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the top Tulip use cases? Because there are many industries that could deploy these. And manufacturing is, you know, it's not one sector. It's many, many different things. Everybody manufactures something. And you, you said before that Tulip is used, you know, obviously both in regulated and non-regulated industries and that the use cases, you know, obviously vary between those. But uh, I understand that even in regulated industries, there are these kind of low hanging fruit that can be picked up. That's astoundingly these bigger systems haven't been able to help companies with. Maybe you can start with some of those lighter use cases and then give me a flavor of kind of one of the bigger deployments that really demonstrates some scale to this. Yeah, so I think when we think about the verticals we sell into, I'll, st- I'll kind of start there. You, you mentioned regulated and non-regulated. I've always felt like if you can sell into a regulated environment, which means you can pass audits, you can be validated, they've determined that you've got quality in your DNA, then you can sell to pretty much any vertical because that really is the, the premium in terms of those that are going to put the most pressure on you to make sure you deliver. So you know, we sell in the life sciences, both pharma and med device. And those use cases typically are electronic batch record, log books, you know, weigh and dispense. You know, those types of applications really fit the needs of, of the life science market. Discrete manufacturers, whether it's assembly, machine shops, their focus typically is on work instructions to ensure error proofing. And they care deeply about their machine uptime, downtime, and performance. And those are clearly our entry point in those markets. And then food and beverage CPG you know, consumer packaged goods, they care deeply about inline quality and yield. So the unique thing for us is I kind of mentioned use cases that were vertically centric, but quite frankly, they, they span all. And we'll go to a med device who cares just equally to work instructions as somebody in, you know, a machine shop. And you might go to a CPG company who, who cares as much about machine monitoring and machine performance as a discrete assembler. So those are the types of use cases we start with. And those are the verticals that we see a lot of traction in. What is week one of a deployment of Tulip? Just give me a sense of how you explain it to someone who's interested or maybe even you know has, has contracted. What, what happens? So a lot of it has to do with the agreement of how many stations. Explain this concept of stations and what that matters for a manufacturer. Typically, I'm guessing you start with a smaller sort of pilot deployment. And that's with Tulip, it's measured in, in sort of the number of stations that you're supporting typically. No, that's right. So we have a, a process called proof of value, a POV. In many of our opportunities, we will start there. And the goal of that proof of value is within essentially nine to 12 weeks, we've worked with you on your use case, your requirements. We've put you through some training. We've gotten you acclimated to the tool platform. And we're live in production within those first nine to 12 weeks with an application or applications that meet the jointly agreed upon criteria. So really within the first four weeks, we're already in the mode of trying to go into deployment and make sure you're getting value from that. With our goal being that you're very happy in that nine to 12 weeks 
and we start to expand across additional stations. And to your point on stations, it really is just physically where we've deployed our tool player, where people are interacting with our system to capture data, look at insights, connect the machines, and so on. But in that very first week, to your very first question, you know, we're already rolling up our sleeves, putting the, the citizen developers to our Tulip University, giving them access to our community of resources to learn and learn best practices, and be building applications within the first you know, few days. Well, it's interesting. I actually have an anecdote about that from these super early days at Tulip. I was still at MIT. At, we got a phone call, essentially. They're like, you know, we took your recommendation and we had Tulip implement a system in our factory, but where are they? So I had to check and it turned out these engineers had traveled to Germany, I believe, and had installed a system in like two and a half days. And I don't know, wanted to save on hotel nights and just flew back home <laughs> before <laughs> there was this big executive visit that was going to happen on a Friday, I believe. So that's like an early story of how fast that at least the early iteration of the system was to deploy. But I guess a lot yeah. has happened now, uh, as you pointed out, with a robust sort of training system. And I'm guessing a, perhaps a, a handover that looks somewhat different than this anecdote. But it's a, I thought it was a funny story because, you know, only an MIT engineer would sort of like leave before you've actually talked to your end client, just super confident that they were just going to be happy and very excited, you know, turning in your paper early kind of a thing. No, it's a great story. And, and I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I do think the people here take pride in Truly, the rapid nature of what we can do. So that, that's a great story. <laughs> so these are some of the use cases. Let's take one, for example. So industrial equipment. Yeah, one I'll talk about because we've talked about it in the past publicly is a company called Terex who does make industrial equipment. Their whole goal was the idea of the citizen developer. How can they build applications? And they had two main focal points, you know, scrap reduction and improved cycle time or productivity in their assembly operations. And they built applications on tool They've now rolled it out over a series now of expansions over the last couple of years. And what they've characterized is a 25% reduction in scrap and about 60% improvement in cycle time in some of their key assembly operations. So when you think about the metrics I said in the very beginning for people who digitize, productivity, efficiency, quality, and Terex was spot on with their goals and they were able to make it happen with Tulip. The other sector that, you know, regulated, we said, but, you know, life sciences and, and medical seems, I guess, surprisingly to some, be, be a very big focus area, certainly for Tulip. Can you tell me, what is it about that solution that, well, first of all, is robust enough to be accepted in that environment, which is regulated and is traditionally perhaps not enormously IT literate, apart from the department that is responsible for that function. So that is a challenge. What is it that makes the functionality suited for this environment? And what, what is it that you have achieved so far in, in this industry? I mean, it's a big industry. There's a yeah. lot to dig into. Yeah, I think what we have, you know, if you think about medical device and pharma specifically, for the most part, because they're regulated, you know, they've instituted some level of manufacturing systems throughout the last 25 or 30 years. In many cases, they're still leveraging what they put in a very long time ago. I'll use pharma as the example for this scenario, and then I'll talk about a med device manufacturer we work with. In the pharma space, there were two or three pretty large MES companies that supported pharmaceutical manufacturing. And they've been around you know, since the 90s. A lot of these companies put that in very early. And now they're at a point where it is now becoming a challenge to maintain. The user experience for the operator is, is in many cases, not that great. It's hard to customize or iterate as they've evolved their manufacturing processes. 
So in many cases, what we're finding is we're going in and either augmenting what they already have, because maybe there's gaps that they couldn't fill with that existing technology. So maybe it's a machine learning gap or a quality gap or EBRs, you know, more flexible. So we'll go in and we'll fill that gap. The second thing we do a lot of is what I like to call facelift to an old system. So they might like the underlying table structure and infrastructure and architecture, but the user experience is dated. It's not mobile friendly. It's not intuitive for an operator. So they can come in and layer something like Tulip and say, hey, I, I'm going to keep my base infrastructure, but now the operator experience has been improved you know, exponentially. And then the third is there are rip and replace scenarios. People say, you know, I've, I've got my value out of that investment and now I've got to go to the cloud and I've got to go to a new scenario. And, and they look at Tulip because we do have the capability to meet those needs. So that's kind of in the pharma, you know, the three sectors of where we kind of fit. It's filling gaps, being a new operator experience, and, and sometimes being their full system of record. Med Device, one company we've worked with, they did evaluate MES. Their goal was we're going to put in a full MES and they evaluated several of the players they looked at Tulip. They love the idea of, again, building applications that were built for purpose. They've now built hundreds of apps, deployed to over 100 workstations. And what they told us, which I think is the key back to my original kind of traditional versus frontline operations platform is they've said to us, we've gotten 3x the ROI by doing it with something like Tulip versus what our expected costs were going to be had we gone traditional on the S. So some of the results have been really impressive. What do you think this signals for the rate of progress going forward, you know, in the industry more generally, if we broaden it sort of beyond individual sort of client use cases, what will industrial operations look like over the next decade? We've talked about some trends, so the low code, no code, the cloud, but clearly everything is, or a lot, is becoming more digitized. One of the surprises I guess I have would be that some analysts I speak to, they're pretty upbeat on these changes now happening faster. Do you, do you think that manufacturing is going into kind of a more rapid state of innovation? Or do you think that because of the complexities, we will still recognize industrial operations 10 years from now? No, I, I really do think we're in a swing right now where things are going at a faster pace than historically they have in this industrial setting. You know, supply chain disruption has caused manufacturers to reconfigure how they operate I mean, again, not to use COVID as a, another example, but the way it impacted certain businesses, if you were in the food and beverage space, as an example, you know, some of their demand went up exponentially such that they were not able to fulfill the needs. So between supply chain disruption, new demand, the idea of always want to be more productive and efficient, you know, we're seeing a pace of adoption that we haven't seen historically. And that includes this whole idea of digitization. It still is remarkable to me when I go into manufacturing facilities and I see some of the, the outdated ways that things are being done that I thought maybe we solved 20 years ago and we're still dealing with. So the traditional manufacturer is cost conservative, but I think the rate of adoptions is, is faster than we've seen in the past. There was an MIT study recently, Work of the Future, and they actually were surprised by their observations in U.S. factories. There were less robots than they were expecting. I think the study started because MIT was sort of saying, will automation go, you know, wreak havoc on the American worker and will they all be disappearing by the end of this decade? And then they indeed found that that isn't really the case. What's your view on this, this alignment of automation versus actually augmenting or helping out the human worker and, and how do these two things layer together? Because surely there is substitution sometimes, you know, you put in a robot and it is 10x more efficient than an individual doing much of the same. 
clearly that has an effect. But uh, you seem to talk a lot more about the human worker and this alignment between automation and the rapport with the human. Can you talk a little bit about how a frontline operation platform actually speaks to the human as opposed to just speaking to the machines? Yeah, no, it's kind of the age old question of, you know, how much automation can you put in and eliminate the human process or the human worker? You know, my view is there's always going to be human intervention in terms of when you make something. You will automate to the level where it becomes diminishing returns to put in more automation. And at that point, a human operator, a frontline worker, however you want to describe the person who does that work, they're going to be needed. And the better we can error proof those human procedures, that's really the focus of the frontline operations platform. So robots, to your point, in certain things, they're absolutely more efficient than any human can possibly be. But there are certain signals, there are certain things, there are certain rounds. As an example, if you're operating a series of wellheads, you know, you can use drones, you can inspect them, but there's always going to be some level of a round that someone does to make sure that when something's wrong, they need to be there and they need the right set of instructions to make sure they do it right, fix it, get it operation, move on. And that's what the frontline operations platform is intended to do. But there's a big scope here between error-prone and old-fashioned paper operations and the, the specter of kind of an AI that's controlling everything. Tulip is somewhere in between catering to all of those. You have these low-hanging fruit, like we see some paper, you're like, there's an app for that. But then you seem to be saying that there's also already scope to start to add machine learning applications and procedures on top of, I guess, MESs or existing procedures, You know, whether they were automated or not before. How does that all work together to get to the level of advanced, even machine vision? We haven't talked so much about that, but Tulip has implemented a lot of different technologies under one roof. Yeah, I think the key is, you know, the architecture has to be appropriate that you can add on new functionality, that you have a common data model that, that can be shared, that you have the ability to interact and integrate to other systems. So if we're pulling data, you know, from a traditional MES to help use our machine learning capabilities, you have to just basically have the fundamental architecture in place, the right level of connectivity, the right level of system integration. And we believe we have that, but but certainly there's challenges when you have islands of automation, as people say, and you're trying to consolidate that into one uniform way to look at your business. So it's, it's, it's an integration story more than anything. But Tulip has made the choice to also go into sort of hardware interfaces. That's an interesting one. And it's a, the audacity, again, I, I guess, of, of kind of not just doing a point-to-point -point app solution for a very discrete problem, but to actually cater to the architectural demands. Is that because connecting to so many different devices, you kind of need to have a little more control at the connection point than you would just with a software? Exactly. What we find is, uh, you know, companies have hardware infrastructure and if they do, we're agnostic and we'll run our platform to whatever degree of infrastructure they have and make sure you know, that we're compatible and that it works. But there are many cases where we have hardware called Edge IO and Edge MC that allows us to quickly connect to machines, quickly connect IO, you know, provide that random machine that never been enabled. We can get it enabled and start to collect data from it and start to share that as part of the application. So, I really look at our hardware story as it's edge-focused hardware, it's very machine-centric, a lot of capability, and it's focused on those companies that haven't made that integration happen. They have automated equipment that's PLC-based and everybody can connect to that, but it's those machines that have never been part of the story. With our hardware, we can make them part of the story. Jason, what is your key message to someone who is working in a manufacturing setting? And, and you know, when you come into the room, what is your baseline pitch? Because the 
the negative okay. pitch is easy, right? It's like, you know, you guys don't know what you're doing. Like, this is all old fashioned and we can, you know, make things so much more efficient. But that's not a positive story. I mean, you're, you're a very optimistic guy. What is the number one sort of message that you have to manufacturers today? Because, you know, many of them are traditional. Many of them, they work in environments that are fundamentally very challenging. And you could put a spin on many things. But essentially, there's not just a lot of time for jokes, I guess, in these environments, because they're dealing with real systems and the machine breaks down, you can get hurt and production stops. So what is kind of the one positive message that makes you walk into any factory, any situation and say, we think we actually might have a solution that's going to make your work life better? What is that one message? Yeah, I think it all comes back to value. So when I talk to somebody who leads operations, whether it's a plant manager or VP operations or the COO, because those are traditionally who we're focused on is, again, helping the operations part of the business become more profitable ultimately. You know, my focus is we can help you get value quickly. We have applications you can start with. We have a platform that gives you all the infrastructure to build things that meet your specific needs. We've done it across a wide variety of verticals, a wide variety of use cases, including regulated. But ultimately, it's all about speed to me. We can deliver you high quality applications at speed that are going to give you value faster than anything else in the market. And I think the best wins that we have and the best customers I've ever had in my career, it's those that they agreed they got value and they had that return on investment. And that's where I always start. So it's speed to ROI. That sounds like a very powerful message because it's not just speed, you know, two years from now, yes. you're, you're saying we'll prove it to you in a few weeks. And that this, if it scales up, might be worth your while. That's a very powerful message. Well, Jason, it's been very interesting to talk to you and to learn a bit more about how you see the space. Thanks so much. No, I appreciate it. It was great. Time flew by. So thank you. The topic was the challenge of frontline operations. And our guest was Jason Dietrich, head of commercial operations at Tulip. In this conversation, we talked about what frontline operations is and what industrial operations will look like over the next decade. My takeaway is that frontline operations is an increasingly crucial business function, whereby a function that previously was considered back office or lower priority, that that of the industrial worker receives increased attention when the frontline gets digitally augmented and managerially supported, workers feel empowered, just like white-collar knowledge workers with desks, connecting machines to serve people, simplifying technology implementation. Operators can carry the key task of uniting industrial production with consumption needs. Over time, this might eradicate inefficiencies in the supply chain. And this development will not only shape industrial operations over the next decade, in some companies, it's already in place. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 50, The Last Mile of Productivity, episode 49, Lean Manufacturing in the USA, and episode 41, Scaling Software Movements. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tula, the connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations. 
to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about our industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented. Conversations that matter. See you next time.